The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com, all one word. There you can listen to old shows as well. Ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Good morning. Scott. Hi, Scott. Hi, Don. So we've got some positive news uh, this week. No, not about the U.S. election, but uh, about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and a possible vaccination. And we saw the stock markets react to that. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's nice to see another company come to the table with uh, similar results, actually, over 90%, 94.5% effectiveness. Uh, compared to the placebo, which, uh, you know, it showed great results. And the nice, part, nice thing about this is that it could just be left in a refrigerator for 30 days and it'd still be effective versus the other was five days, plus the storage could just be in a normal freezer rather than like minus 70 Celsius that the Pfizer one does. So it, uh, it just basically gave more confidence to the markets. They all reacted, uh, went up not, not to the same degree as the first time uh, with Pfizer, but you know, any news to seeing some end in sight adds some certainty, and that always adds a little bit more confidence in the stock market. So the markets went up because of it. What is it like when you have a situation like this, unlike a recession where you can necessarily cannot predict when it will end? At least we are figuring in six months from now, by the time we get to spring and summer, we will have a vaccination in our arms and things hopefully quickly will return back to normal. Now, obviously, I don't think that'll be as quick as everybody hopes, but it certainly is going back uh, in that direction. Do economists look at that and go, OK, this is tough now, but we know in six months we'll be here? Well, the stock market in general, it's always looking six months to a year ahead. So it's always forecasting. And so, yes, when they see a vaccine come out, they say, perfect. That means things will be kind of normal. We don't know what the new normal will be, but it will certainly be a lot more normal than we have right now. And there'll be a a pent-up demand for certain things too. So, And then on the same token, there's other companies that people will be happy not to be partaking in because they've been doing it for so long. And for example, say indoor cycling, they can't wait to say go to a gym, for example. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see certain stocks go up because of this. And that's what happened. The more value-oriented stocks, the very safe stocks went up. And the more, call it stay-at-home stocks, went down once this announcement came up. So there may, will be some hybrid in the future. And that's for the, you know, the stock market will make bets every day, trying to figure out where that will be. But in generally, you know, generally speaking, the market is predicting about a year in advance. And that's why you saw the rise in the markets. And I'll just add one more thing to that. My um, uh, wife's in healthcare, and we were talking about, the, and she was saying that the fact that you have multiple vaccines is actually really positive. We even get another two or three producers of different vaccines that'll help um, really increase our, our overall protection as well by having different choices. Mm. Speaking of life and death, uh, you have to be prepared for both, and that means a will. Get a will is what you're saying. Get a will. I, you know, I just had to share uh, a story and sort of some background that a client of mine was sharing with me. Um, and I didn't know this individual at all in terms of the person who died, but um, 
you know, it just it just came back and it flooded back to me and his comments about, you know, we have to have a will and the benefit of having a will. So, Scott, of course, I'm going to throw this out to you. What percentage of Canadians have a will, a valid will? I think it's less than 50%. I, I'll guess and say it's 40%. Well, in 2018 study by Bloomberg, it was 51% have a will. So you're 49, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then a study by uh, a lawyer's survey that was done in 2020 uh, showed 56%. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the ballpark of people that don't have a valid will. What's the number one reason people don't get a will? Don't want to talk about dying. Don't have time? They think they're too young. Yeah, mm-hmm. They think they're too young. And, um, well, you know, that's, that's interesting, Andy, because I actually had a chat with a client. He's 92 years old, hadn't got a will. And yeah. I think they got it around their head that they might get a will now. And it's quite <laughs> interesting. So I think they've said they're no longer too young. I'm old enough now at 90 years time. <laughs> uh, you know, and this is what people say. I don't need a will until I'm in my 60s or 70s. And, um, you know, if you speak with a lawyer, but, but in theory, you should right at age 18. You should make a will because you want to make sure that the people that you can direct certain things and you don't want to leave things hanging. And so I want to tell you a story about uh, Brian and Brian was um, uh, 60 years old and uh, and actually had been in the military service. So uh, but he died. So he died two weeks ago. And he having been in the military service, uh, one thing we found out is that he was entitled to uh, an additional $5,000. Canada Pension Plan pays um, $2,500 as a death benefit. And if you're in military service, you get an extra five, so that's $7,500. So anyway, Brian had um, uh, was born in Canada, but he, uh, his career started him in Japan, and he taught English in Japan for a number of years. And while in Japan, uh, met his wife, a Japanese woman, and they got married. And they had one son, and the son is now 22 years old. Um, so unfortunately, I guess 20 years ago, they divorced, and uh, Brian came back to Canada, and his son and ex-wife stayed in Japan. And so as a result, well, the son never learned English. You know, he spent his entire life in Japan, and is Japanese from his perspective. So because... Um, because Brian died with no will, they now have to go down through the lineage, and he is the next person. The son is the next person who would have authority over uh, Brian's final estate and the state decisions. So they've now had to go through the Canadian and Jap- Japanese consulates and using diplomats to try and find a 22-year-old who's you know out and about in Japan. And uh, they need to obviously explain everything, but they also need to translate everything. Everything that's Canadian has to be translated to Japanese, and they need to verify who he is. So identification was important to be able to keep the wheels moving here in Canada uh, as far as him being able to give instructions. So they needed to actually get him physically with photo ID, holding it up, taking a picture with a commissioner of oaths or a lawyer to verify who he is, to the di- diplomatic uh, people, and then they could now progr- proceed to pr- put in the paperwork to make him the uh, the authority representative of Brian. So the, the, the reality is that they need the son to authorize the burial decisions. So in the meantime, Brian's body is lying in, in wait until uh, all of this can get done. 
And so, you know, you can imagine how this loose ends if it's leaving with everybody and it, it, you know, just everything, nobody can move forward. And so it makes it very difficult to continue on with the process. And this is why you need a will. And so the first thing is basically you can decide, and I'm going to give you some the, the what ifs around it, but you know, you can decide who's going to act for you when you die. So if you don't do, if you don't do the will, you know, your administrator, your trustee or your executor basically is oversees everything. And, uh, they give you. They make choices about your funeral. They make choices about the just following through your will and the distribution of your will, looking after all of your final affairs. So, who is that person going to be? And the next thing is that you have the last say in terms of dictating where your assets are going to go. And this makes it easier on everyone because, it, with, in the absence of giving someone this control, you know the, the courts are going to try and divvy things up and. You know, and certainly it leaves out friends completely. So, you you know, nothing would ever go to a friend. It's basically going to go to relatives, according to the courts, and equally try and divide things. Certain assets can't be divided. How do you divide the value of a business? How do you divide, you know, a cottage, right? These things have to be sold. So it really does complicate things if you, um, if you don't address that thing. Where do you want things to go? You also get to decide who's going to take care of your kids, all right? And that's just straightforward. Anybody with children under the age of 18, you know, you need to identify who that person's going to be. Uh, the next one is minimizing taxes with your will. So we've talked about this before. You've got the little tax. We call that's your probate tax or the estate administration fee that they talk about. And then there's the big tax, and that's the income tax that your estate pays uh, in the final year of death. And so, in fact, I was just reviewing a client plan this week, and in terms of reviewing their estate, uh, at age 95, it looked to be about $2 million bucks, And the taxes at that point, the little tax, the probate tax, is going to be about 38000 But the big tax, the income tax, only is going to be 650000 So now you know why the importance of using a will but minimizing tax and we looking at um, an alter ego trust for them and a few other things to help that along as well. And then I think another important one is you can give to the causes that matter to you at death. So, you know, with your will, you're able to identify charities or the causes or, or people that are, or even um, societies that you might be able to want to give money back. Maybe it's, it's the, the RNA or the, 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 or the ONA, the Ontario Nursing Association right now that somebody wants to give back to. But, that's, you know, these are just examples. And I think that the, the reality is, is that, it, you know, why are you chosen? People don't want to talk about it. But... Um, you know, you can certainly, I mean, it's an honor to be asked to be a personal representative or an executor for a will, but um, it's something that involves a lot of responsibility. You're going to be looking after someone's affairs, completely dealing with everything in terms of managing the final, um, the final estate distributions. Um, and if you can't do it, if you don't feel capable of doing it, it's important that you do nothing initially. Do not do anything in the act of presenting yourself as an executor to the estate. You must immediately abdicate your role. Because if you start doing something in the role of executor, then it becomes more complicated and you have to post bonds, etc. So that's just a caveat. Um, and certainly an executor can be paid. So think about that when you're drafting your will. What would be a reasonable amount to pay this person for the scope of work that they're going to be doing for you and how much time it will take, which can often be a year or two. Uh, 
does yeah. does everybody uh, is everyone who is an executor? Do they are they paid? Does everyone who be who agrees to be an executor do they get a portion of that? Yes, and that would typically be spelled out in the will, and it would be a percentage. Right, so and is it, it traditionally be, the same all the time? It, well, it doesn't have to be the same, but right. it, unless it's spelled out differently, but in right. general, it would be the same. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if there's a if there was five percent of the estate was going to be paid to the executors, they would take five percent and split it, you know, one way, two ways, three ways, whatever that number is. Would that be dictated in the will? What percentage they would get? Is that common? It can be. They, and or is there a normal compensation? Th- and there's a range. There's a range in terms of percentages that the court right. would, if in the absence of saying what the amount would be, right? Um, they, they can. The courts can decide what an appropriate amount would be. Usually to a maximum of around five percent. Right. Okay. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 or check out the website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question and uh, through the list, uh, you can ask a question through the listener inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. And you can call now and leave a message. I'll return your call at 905-529-7165. Uh, Don and Andy, we were talking about wills and, and what you should have done and the various reasons for that. But what does constitute a will? I've heard that, you know, you can write down something on a napkin and as long as there's a witness, it's good. Or do you have to go through a, a lawyer and such? And, and, you know, once you have it, is that in your possession? Do you keep that? Is that yours? Does it stay with the lawyer's office? What, what makes a will? What, what constitutes a will? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into the one at the very end, which you asked, which is where do you keep it? And, um, you know, that's a really interesting... So in a, in a perfect world, you would keep your will probably at home, and you would, instore, you would install a floor safe, which is <laughs> fireproof and floodproof. So those are the reason it's in the floor is it can't be picked up and taken away, and obviously fireproof and floodproof for all the reasons. So that is the sort of the high watermark, if you want to call it, for storing your will. Uh, the next best thing would be a, a safe at home, a waterproof, fireproof safe. You don't have to keep it with a lawyer, um, but and everybody thinks you do. But typically, I think it's probably better because lawyers move offices. Sometimes they get lost. I, my recommendation is that you keep it at home and you keep it in a safe. Yes, and actually, the, in going one step further, the power of attorney is the other one, and even more reason to be at home. I have actually had somebody that needed to use a power of attorney. Unfortunately, it was on a weekend. And the power of attorney was being held at the lawyers, and it made it very difficult. They had to wait till Monday, wow. and to get certain things done. It was, uh, it just it just makes sense to have it there at home. Maybe a copy at the lawyer. That's not not, not a problem. But definitely have one that you can use, and uh, you know a copy that's legal at home. Mm-hmm. But uh, to answer your question, Scott, there's three basic types of wills, and and usually it's go to the lawyer, draw it up, and get it done. Great idea. That's pretty much foolproof. You know that it's legal. You know that it was well thought through normally. 
It uh, never hurts to have a second set of eyes. Um, sometimes there's omissions where people want to omit on purpose certain people. And the fact that they mention that in the will is a good thing. Or they give them a, a smaller amount because they don't feel they deserve as much. Um, at the end of the day, there's a big difference from fair and, and equal. And just because they, it, it may not be fair um, to give somebody the same amount of money or the same amount of same percentage because they're far more important in that person's life. So, again, these are the discussions I know Annie and I have had with our, our clients in going in with going to see the lawyer armed with an idea of what they really want. As rather, rather than going there and just chatting with the lawyer, you've already armed with a, a game plan. This is what I want in the will. And then the lawyer will then draw the will up to make sure they adhere to your wishes. Otherwise, it ends up being a boilerplate will, and they may not say, okay, you got three kids, and each one gets a third each. That may not be the case, particularly if one has not seen uh, one of the kids for the last 10 years or, or have very little contact. So, again, this is where it's very important to make sure you, you kind of have a good idea going in. Um, the second best type of will would be an actually what a holograph will or just a handwritten will. And this is where you've signed it, You've written in your hand, handwriting, actually written, and it's, it is nice to have it witnessed. But again, the lawyers, uh, the courts seem to like those more so than simply printing one out, a will kit, seems to have the most holes and seem to end up in courts a lot more and add more issues. And I would, I would put that third on the list if, if you had a choice. Ideally, though, it's worth considering how much money you've made and how much your assets are worth to pay $500 or $600, whatever the cost is to get it properly done, it's money well spent. Get it done and have them, as Andy mentioned, at home. So um, to that note, it's kind of interesting. Unfortunately, I did have a client pass away a, a few weeks ago, and we had actually gone through the full will and made sure that her will was done properly. And she's been a client. She literally retired Oh, I, I met her just before she was 65. And so it's kind of interesting going back because I had two clients about the same time. And I said, I like to kind of call this uh, follow the plan or else because what a difference experience when somebody kind of jumps off the lane and tries to find a different way of doing things. So I, I followed one. And, and unfortunately, this client, I, I've known her for a long time prior to um, – I knew her as a kid, she became a client. She was in her 70s, she was widowed, and she had a very conservative portfolio. And this, for argument's sake, call her uh, Mrs. Smith. And Mrs. Smith had $313,000 January 1st of 2008. Unfortunately, as we all know, 2008, all the way to March 7th, 2009, was the financial crisis. And her portfolio went from, and again, this is a very conservative portfolio, but it still went down from 313000 down to 255000 by the th by the time 2008 rolled around. So it had gone down $53,000 in value. Now, you never lose that money until you sell. Well, unfortunately, 2009 came out no much, not much better than 2008 ended, and it continued to drop until it was actually March 9th, where the value on March 9th 
In fact, her value was 231000 March 4th. At that time, the bank she was dealing with happened to be RBC, and they said it would be good to move all their money and buy GICs. And at this time, her portfolio was down 77000 and that was the worst almost the worst day. She was five days before the worst day of the market and had dropped 25% from the January 1st, 2008 value. And so, you know, that's significant. And I understand that was a scary time in all financial planners' lives and, more importantly, all our clients' lives because particularly the ones that were drawing money on this to live because she needed a 1000 a month to live on. And she was drawing this down. And so this was, uh, it's kind of interesting. Actually, when we went back, her largest stock holding, because one of the, her major fund was called the Dividend Fund at the time, and its number one stock holding was RBC, okay? And the same institution that said that her portfolio was too risky, even though her, their largest holding was actually their bank. But anyway, fast forward 11 years, six months later, where would she be now? And that's the opportunity cost. This is what you don't often see. Where would she be left? And it turned out, had she had left it there, she would have received a 6.2% annual rate of return for the next 11 and a half years. And her portfolio would have grown. It would actually have grown, first of all, from 231000 up to 270000 It's work. It was actually working its way back to its its highs of January 1st, 2008. So it actually would have grown. And since she did move it into GICs with RBC, I'm just going to guess that they would have made about 2%. They may not even have made that. And her portfolio would now be worth, here 11 half years later, 135,000. And there's a difference, coincidentally enough, of exactly 135,000. Had she just left it alone, she would have she would have currently today twice as much money that she did had because she moved it. And so I'm, I'm just saying, well, let's say here we are 11 and a half years later, and this client no longer needs 2000 a month. She actually needs, sorry, 1000 a month. She needs 2000 a month because prices have gone up. And just say the cost of living in general. She needs more help around the house. She's 11 and a half years older. She's now in her early 80s. Well, if she did need 2000 a month, that money will now run out in six, and a half, six years. And first of all, you can't get 2% anymore. You're getting about 1.5%. If she were to leave, had she left it with IG and got 6.2%, it would still last another 19 and a half years, which would put her well into her hundreds. Okay, So totally financially independent, no, no worries in the world. Now, the client that did stay with me, she actually just died in her 90s, and we'll call her Mrs. Jones. Uh, I looked at her portfolio going back to January 1st, 2009. It was worth $432,000. She has been taking out 900 a month. And over that time, and it's been doing just fine. In fact, it had grown to $587,000. In the exact same period of time. So her return actually worked out to 6.58% per year. And had she, she was actually told, this is the exact same scenario, she was actually told, because there was a RBC very close to her, that they should move it 
in a very similar portfolio than Mrs. Smith. And had she had done that, her portfolio would not be worth 587000 It would be 261000 right now. And unfortunately, she did pass away. Uh, super late. I, I had her as a client since she retired, and that uh, she was early in my career. So she was uh, about 30 years with me as a client. Now, I had gone through her will, and we organized things. And she had originally thought she would like to give a dollar value to each of her grandkids. And I know, Andy, we've talked about this before in the air. It's difficult to use dollar values to grandchildren on a will because if you say, let's, let's give each grandkid $20,000, well, what if we run out of money? Or what if we only got 60000 left? There's three grandkids. The grandkids get all of it, and our own kids get none of it. So we often like to use a percentage. So going back to Mrs. Jones, I suggested that she had two kids, 40% go to each child, and her four grandkids, 5% to each grandchild. Well, had she have, fortunately, um, she had, had signed all the paperwork with IB, RBC back in 2009, and she canceled that transaction. It's a good thing because that 361000 she would have had would have left each child 144000 each, and each grandchild 18000 each. And because she left it here with us, and she followed the plan, and it's so hard to, especially when you see the markets going down and the, and the media being very negative, and the statements are negative, it's easy not to follow the plan. Thankfully, she did. But more importantly, her, her, her kids, in particular the daughter I spoke to last week, she's very thankful because instead of getting $144,000 for each child, each child is now getting 235000 each. Massive difference. So each child is now getting $90,000 more than they would have, but the grandkids, they're going to be quite happy. Now, 18000 I don't know about you, uh, if I was a grandkid receiving 18000 I would have been quite happy, period. But I'd be even more happy if I received $29,350. That's a better car, <laughs> whatever you're going to purchase with it, or pay off your, OS your OSAP loans, or help you with a down payment on a house. That was another $11,300 more each grandchild got because of this. And it just shows that, you know, as Andy and I have talked to, we went through the will, we, we did a proper will, uh, we've done all the tax planning, she maximized her TFSA along the way, and her RIF, interesting enough, we, will, we whittled that down all the way to $4,500, which will not be a big tax burden at all upon her death. Um, the only tax burden is capital gains, which is not a bad thing because that just means she made some money along the way. So when we're talking about risk, this is the part that kind of irks me when you're going to the bank and a bank, somebody at the bank says you've got too much risk. They're talking about capital risk. And so when this, you know, Mrs. Smith was told that you've got too much risk, well, that just means how much this, it goes up and down. The real risk that they both are having is that they have um, longevity risk and inflation risk. And if you're going to run out of money in six years and you're only going to be 87 years old, that's a, that's a lot of stress. In fact, and she just left it alone, she would have been able to live to 101, 102. And 
that takes out that longevity risk and the inflation risk. Um, tax, tax risk is another risk, and that's the other part. Because a lot of this was non-registered investments, you would have to pay tax. Even though at a low tax bracket, both these ladies are in lower tax brackets, um, 20%, but you're still paying 20% tax on interest income. The dividend income that they were receiving, they would have paid zero tax on this. And the other idea, if you are in a higher bracket, you also have to look at, okay, capital gains, you can defer tax. And where you're getting interest, interest uh, income, it's added to your income every year, and you could be getting old age security clawback if you're over that threshold. Where deferring that tax using capital gains will, will affect that. So there's a lot of risks, and we've talked about this before, but there's a lot of risks. Everybody likes to focus on capital risk, and that is definitely a risk. But capital risk is only a risk in the short term. Long term, it is not a risk. In fact, they've proven time and time and time again that you know real estate does well over 10 years. The stock markets do well over 10 years. In fact, there's never been a 20-year period where the market hasn't done well. In fact, the stock market has averaged 6% above inflation over 200 years. But if you're going to move it to GICs, you're guaranteed that you now have the risks of interest rate risk, inflation risk, and longevity risk, not to mention tax risk. So you've, you've now created more risks by moving it. So this is the key of having a financial planner to make sure you're managing all your risks. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Uh, CPP, the take-up decision, what's this all about? The CPP take-up decision. And, uh, you know, this is something that continues to be an area where people are delving into to understand, you know, should I take my CPP when I retire? Should I wait till 65? Should I wait till 70? And uh, so there's been a lot of talk about it. And and I've been constantly, we're trying to sort of find what information is out there that sort of backs up what Don and I have been saying for years is that for many, many of our clients, it makes sense to defer your Canada pension plan. So I came across an, uh, an actuarial study by the Canadian Institute of Actuaries, and this was a July 2020 study that was done by the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. And the title of the study is the CPP Take-Up Decision. And it's a 38-page report which goes over in, in, in very detailed mathematical analysis. <laughs> how, 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 over how many nights did you read this, Andy? Well, I was printing off the information, <laughs> and I realized that there was 38 pages, but I only needed 12 Uh-oh. because the rest were all numbers uh, and formulas. So, but I, I, my hat's off, and I give uh, kudos to this group for 
really presenting something. The goal was to present um, something that is simple in the terms of being able to talk about it, but at the same time definitive in terms of trying to un- understand for Canadians what, what the differences are. And so really this is sort of this, the, the big question, Scott, I guess, if you were to, if I was to ask you this, what percentage of Canadians take their CPP payments at the normal age of 65 or earlier since it introduced the flexible retirement in the 1980s? I would say the majority would probably take it early. Uh, I'll guess and say 55%. I'd say 95. Ooh, can I change my can I change mine now? Ninety-five <laughs> percent of Canadians take their CPP payment. I want that one, Scott. Hey, can you sixty-five or younger? Can you imagine if Don and I had the opposite answers, and I had won that one? <laughs> I think we'd have to change the title. Future, there's a future role for that's you. right. We'd have to change the title of the show. I think. <laughs> uh, so you know what? And so what the actuarials, and I'm going to try and summarize the 38 pages for you in three minutes or less here. But choosing between the CPP alternative is it's complicated. Uh, it's based, there's infinite combinations in terms of when you retire, your financial situation, but what the paper wanted to basically get to in sort of a mathematical framework that was reasonably into a reasonably detailed, but also make it effective for communication. They wanted to create a, um, basically a, compare two identical financial strategy options that differ only in the timing of, ta- of when you take up your CPP. So there's two options in the study. Option one is you are going to delay your Canada Pension Plan payments from age 65 to age 70. You're going to use a portion of your RRSPs or RIF savings, and we'll call that the bridging funds, to provide for the withdrawals during that five-year period that exactly match the income that CPP pension, adjusted for inflation, will provide you when an individual takes it up at age 70. Okay? Option two is claim your Canada Pension Plan payments at 65 and self-manage, so self-invest your your RRSP or RIF savings that would have otherwise been used for the bridge during the five-year period in option one over your retirement period so as to achieve the same net annual income as option one throughout retirement and maintaining that level until death or the exhaustion of the bridging funds. So the... First of all, when you think about this, starting it early, starting it late, I just want to quickly tell people, I'll remind them. So if you start at age 65, that's what you get, the, whatever you're entitled to. And whether you get 70% of the maximum or 100%, you're right bang on, that's what you get at 65. If you take it earlier, they deduct a half a percent for each month you take it early. So you can start as early as 60, but you would lose half times half percent times 60. That's a 30% reduction. You can start as late as 70 and in that case, every year after 65, you get a 0.7% increase for a total 6 times 7, 42% increase. But it's not actually a 42% increase. Why isn't it a 42% increase? Is because Canada Pension Plan is also indexed for those five years while you're not getting it. So the actual increase is 50%. So you're going to get 50% more at age 70 than age 65. Yeah. And I think that um, the findings tell us, and I'm going to quickly get to here, that the majority of Canadians with sufficient RRSP savings 
intended to increase their secure lifetime annual retirement income. So what I'm saying there is that by deferring to 70, you now get this guaranteed lifetime income. Um, depends on your current investment returns and life expectancy. Uh, and to that extent, that given today's low interest rate environment and the general population longevity expectation, expectations, the paper finds that delaying Canada pension plan payments is clearly a financially advantageous strategy, even in an extreme case where that favors not deferring Canada pension plan, which would mean low longevity expectations and a high investment return, a person still faces a 50% probability of receiving more income by delaying Canada pension plan. So basically, 75 to 80% of Canadians will be better off by delaying their Canada pension plan payments. And the only people that are not better off are those that would have a very low income that would otherwise be entitled to uh, guaranteed income supplement, et cetera, because that smooths out their income so they don't lose those extra benefits. So I think we're getting close to putting this to rest, and the issue comes down to uh, if you've got enough resources, you should consider deferring your Canada pension plan to age 70. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister, Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can check out their website at andyanddon.com or call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're talking about navigating your retirement during a COVID-19 pandemic. It's added some challenges, hasn't it? Well, it's a, I came across an interesting article, and it, it was saying, okay, it's very simple. You simply, first step, work out how much money you need to maintain your lifestyle. Oh, that's, a, that's really easy. First of all, you have to trust yourself that you go through all your bills and you actually know your lifestyle costs. Now, we, Andy and I have talked about that before. Things such as Quicken or money, there's a lot of programs that can do this. But quite often, people still forget a lot of things. And this is where having a third party going through that makes a lot of sense. Also important is knowing how often you're going to buy a vehicle. Inflation has to be put in there. And truly, to be accurate, you need to also do a Monte Carlo analysis, which shows a thousand situations of the markets going up and down to give you a very confident amount of money that you'll need to maintain that lifestyle. So that's what a financial planner would do. But again, it's very, it sounds really easy on paper. Find out my costs. And here's the number, here's the amount of money I need. It's a little more difficult than that. The next would be your portfolio. It might have changed now because interest rates are so low. And that 60-40 mix that used to work for many, many years may not work as well. And particularly on the fixed income side, when the government bonds are paying such a low interest rate, we're talking 10-year bonds around 1%, maybe you need other bonds. And absolutely, we have in our managed solutions Corporate bonds are added, high-yield bonds are added, commercial real estate's added, global bonds are added, um, short-term floating rate bonds and mortgages, private debt, and even preferred and high-dividend high stocks. So there's lots of different types of fixed income. They, are, they do have a little bit more risk, but 
there is also the risk if you get too low of interest rate, you're going to run out of money. And, you know, a perfect example, if you had a million dollars right now, and you say, well, a million dollars at 5%, that's 50000 a year. Not bad. But if it was only 2%, that's 20000 a year. And a lot of people just simply look at the million dollars. They're forgetting how much income will it provide. And the income is extremely important. Thirdly, coincidentally, Andy, was Canada Pension Plan. Seek that right age. What is that right age? And delaying it to 65 is a, like, a guarantee. Almost in all cases, unless there is some massive um, health issues where you don't see yourself living a long time, you may want to take it earlier than that. But generally speaking, as you mentioned, Andy, um, deferring it even up to 70 might make sense. In fact, you might want to look at this as part of your fixed income because you will need 6% rate of return on your investments in order to offset what you can make in your Canada Pension Plan between 65 and 70. And what if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to get 6%, well, there's nothing guaranteed on that 6%. It's impossible to find a 6% guarantee right now, and therefore, by delaying your Canada Pension Plan, it's like getting a 6% rate of return. And therefore, that will also, by delaying it, allows you to diversify your other funds a bit more into the equity area, which also makes sense. But as Andy mentioned, first of all, you do have to have enough money to delay. And if you don't, therefore, it's a moot point and you won't be able to. Also, the nice thing about Canada Pension Plan, it is recession and pandemic proof. You will get this check regardless of the markets. And it's kind of nice knowing that part's going in. Fourth, um, annuities might be part of your overall fixed income. Now, that's the same reason of a Canada Pension Plan of deferring it. It helps you with that longevity risk. What happens if you do live to 100? And you don't have to worry about dipping into your principal. In fact, with an annuity, you've actually given the principal away. It's already gone. But you're getting an income for the rest of your life. And that's really, you've got to think about yourself and think, I want to take that risk and I want to eliminate as much as I can. Annuities do that. Deferring Canada Pension Plan also does that. Um, have a plan to adjust your payments in recessions. And this makes a lot of sense. So this year, for example, for the listeners out there, it's still not too late to have that reduction in your RIF. Because this year you can have 25% reduction in the minimum RIF payment. So some of the listeners out there may have said, okay, I get my RIF payment just annually, and it happens in December. Well, that's right around the corner. So if you're normally getting... $10,000 $10,000 per year RIF payment, this year you can actually get 7500 It may make sense. It's a one-off. It, it will not be in effect so far next year. We don't know of any uh, rule change on that, but I would assume it's not going to take place next year. So if it does make sense to have that reduction, um, do it. It may actually increase your OAS because you might be in a clawback situation. So it might be a great scenario for you. And lastly, it's simply just spending less. It's absolutely amazing if you spend less money. We've actually gone through this experiment in the last six months of people are spending less money, and it's incredible. So if you're sitting there at, say, $500,000 and you're getting a 5% rate of return, that's 2000 a month, and that will last forever. You're not even touching principal. But all of a sudden, if you're saying, you know what, I'm going to take $4,000 a month out, that money only lasts for 15 years, and you're going to run out. It's amazing how quickly, once you get past the rate of return, how quickly it starts to run out. And we also find out during this pandemic, 
certain things you just may not need as much. So perhaps when we come out the other side, was that really important to do that? And I'd rather spend that on travel or whatever the case might be. At the end of the day, you will not basically spend those eggs, okay? Don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And those eggs are really what you're living off. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.